Hey there, welcome to Broadcast to Post. I'm Jeff Sengpil, CTO at Keycode Media. This is the show where we interview leaders and experts in the AV, broadcast, and post-production spaces. We're giving you the inside tips to grow your media workflows and business today. I'm Jeff Sengpil. I'm with Keycode Media. I'm the, the CTO. We're going to be talking about remote production, cloud, AI, and your future in post-production. Everybody got quiet at that one. I love that. Uh, like I said, I'm Jeff. Um, with us, we're going to have everybody uh, introduce themselves. Uh, Shaheen. Yep. Hello, hello. There we go. My name is Shaheen. Um, I'm the director of post-production at Vox Media. And we've got Sean. Hi, I am Sean McDaniel. I'm a content producer for instructional media at Frame.io, uh, an Adobe company. An Adobe company. And David Leopold. Hi, I'm Dave Leopold, Director of Strategic Development for LucidLink. Awesome. And you spent a little time with uh, the, the mountain, Paramount, before? Yes. Uh, Viacom my, then. Yeah. my yeah. In my past life, I was a television editor for 20 years, much of that time at Viacom. And my past life, uh, well, I'm, I'm the CTO at Kiko. My past life, I was... Uh, building facilities and chief engineer at various uh, post houses around town. Um, also did a stint in one of these studios for a number of years. All right. Um, let's get started on the cloud. It's always fun to talk about that. Um, people are saying that it's reaching maturity. Um, it's been three years since we first got obsessed with cloud and remote editing because Necessity was a mother, and we all needed to do something to keep working. Uh, Frame.io, you guys were founded in 2014? Yes. And um, let's talk a little bit about the, this history of the cloud and remote editing, types of people who are, were using it in the early days and the maturity of the cloud for production and post-production today. How did your work in the cloud start? And we'll start with uh, Shaheen. Um, our work started when the pandemic hit. We needed to find a way to remotely keep collaborating for editors to be able to get into the edit. Um, and there had been some early stages of technology that made that possible. And then very quickly we learned about more, LucidLink and uh, Adobe came along. Yeah, that was our first foray, I think. Well, did David, tell us about your cloud journey. Yeah, so for for many years, even sort of pre-cloud, I was often the one person on my team that couldn't work from home, um, you know, and I'd, I'd be really jealous of all my friends who were producers bringing their laptops home on a on a nice day, or I was living in New York, a, a snowstorm would be coming and they wouldn't be a problem for them. I'd spend the whole day before just loading up hard drives to to lug them home, and there was always one file that I didn't have. Uh, so, so that, that was pretty painful. So when the cloud came along, it, it seemed like it was pretty great. Uh, there were a lot of big promises, but I think that we sort of, we took on these inefficiencies just sort of because we had to, in order to enable these, these workflows that we wanted. So we wanted to be able to work from home. And so we put up with slow downloads or, uh, making it hard to share things. Um, so right before the pandemic, I was actually working on a remote editing initiative, trying to sort of get ahead of the curve and figure out how we could send editors home, uh, and let them work from there. And then the pandemic came and it went from theory to practice very, very quickly. 
so that's sort of how we jumped into uh, to the cloud because you know I think for many people it was just a necessity. Daniel, your your cloud transformation story. Uh, yeah, so my first experience with the cloud was actually with Frame.io. Uh, I was an editor at BuzzFeed and kind of our process was our exports uh, from Premiere, send those right up into Frame.io, uh, review and approval. And this was kind of a whole new world. I mean, we knew about the cloud with, you know, our phones, you know, with our contacts and our photos and everything kind of syncing. But, you know, when I first saw that at BuzzFeed and I was seeing that in a, in a film and technology kind of world, I was, uh, I was pulled in immediately. Um, and yeah, that was my first experience with it. And I would say what, one of my first experiences was um, I had a number of folks that worked for me that came from AWS. So they had a cloud first thought pattern. Um, and we, we discussed what could work there and what wouldn't necessarily work there. And, uh, you know, this is back in 2017, 2018-ish. So um, a lot of, a lot of, you know, thought discussions back then that then had to become into practice as, uh, you know, the pandemic set in and began to talk to, you know, people when I was a key code who needed something to continue working. Um, and that that's also what led to a lot of the remote editing discussions and how that began to evolve. Um, how would you say remote editing has evolved from what you're, you're seeing on the inside? Uh, I mean, you know, from sending out hard drives to, you know, using FTP servers to send files back and forth, um, you know, uh, since coming into frame, seeing how quickly and fast uh, you're able to send your assets up uh, into frame, we really kind of opened that door up quite a bit um, with Dropbox and, and, and Box and other file sharing services, you know, they, they started adapting, uh, some of those technologies to work with, with, uh, you know, video assets and things like that. So we, we started seeing this world kind of evolving, uh, back in the day and it's, it's still evolving now. So yes. Well, that, that, that's the fun thing. All of this technology is still continuing to iterate for us. Iterates the cloud word. Remember that. Um, it's continuing to, to come along and, and new do new and better and bigger things. Um, how, have you seen the, the evolution of remote editing from your original discussions and initiatives? Yeah, I, I think it's been a drastic change uh, in, a, in a fairly short amount of time. I, I think we had sort of five, I would say five or six years where people were dipping a toe into cloud and remote editing was always on the edge of that, that so much had to be accomplished in just cloud technology in order for remote editing to even just begin. And since the, since the pandemic started, uh, again, it, it was that necessity that there was just such a need for business continuity above all else. And so people started playing with the technologies, mixing and matching some of it just you know, by speed, the speed that technology develops, um, it's it's now become a reality where you can have an entire team in multiple locations all working at the same time on the same content. And that's just something that we could not do just a few years ago. So it's, it's pretty amazing to me. Shane, have you seen the evolution take place for you and your team? 
very conscious of the battery on this. Um, I think for me now, actually, that I think about it, I think remote editing came about before cloud-based for me. Um, when the pandemic started, I was working on an, a documentary for HBO and despite us being all over the place, we already had a setup where we could like jump desktop in and access the NAS, access the footage. Um, but I think it's, I think I would say like 2021 that we caught up with cloud-based technology and that kind of elevated what remote editing looked like. There was less of a lag, um, you know, despite being able to access all the media at the same time as remote editors. I think, you know, sometimes we're still reliant on the person who's um, leading something to be the one to execute everything. So they have to be the ones to do the export. We got to wait for them to make sure that it gets uploaded. But when the media is all living in one place, like with Lucidlink or, you know, when everyone has access at the same time, I think our turnovers have been a lot more seamless. So working across different time zones, it's like someone's clocking out. Hey, no problem. I can pick it back up and I don't have to turn anything over. Um, I think that's the main shift that I feel like I've seen in the past few years. And that that's kind of the shift that, that, that I saw there where... Um, there's remote editing and there's cloud editing, and they're not necessarily the same exact thing. So a lot of folks did things like Jump and Z Central or RGS as it was at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, a lot of other folks decided to try to put systems in the cloud itself. Um, and you know, there's a cost associated with that. Uh, and one of the interesting things is, you know, both Adobe and Frame are are more along the lines of tools that assist people who are remote editing, meaning they've got their own systems at home. Because remote editing also could have meant, hey, grab your system, take it home, we'll send you drives. And the evolution of that kind of is where Lucid came from. We're continuing to get the drives and the review and approval, that's that's where, you know, frame fits in. Um, and it's it's been a, an interesting evolution there. And yet you still have folks who are fully cloud-based editorial, which you all can still work with anyway. It doesn't matter where the system is, whether it's in the cloud or it's not. Um, you're still feeding data and you're still dealing with all the metadata. Um, so it, it's, it's been a very interesting evolution, which also gets to AI. Um, as I had said before, I um, welcome our robot overlords, just to be safe. Um, so the tools, uh, the tools that are out there, the things that we really have difficulty doing as humans, image recognition, speech to text, a lot of behind the scenes functions in Adobe Sensei. Um, and let's start with a round of applause for the features uh, that we have been using for years. So part, part of that is, you know, our script sync out, is out there, text-to-based editing from, from Adobe. Um, it's been there for quite a while. It's just making further and further inroads and has now begun to um, pick up some steam with some buzz behind it. Um, we're gonna get more into the uh, chat GPT and the um, iterate or generative AI um, with future uh, applications. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about text-based editing, uh, reimagining editing with AI. How do you feel this is, David, how do you feel this is gonna impact everyone? I, I think this is incredible. Um, you know, really seeing, having, having had 
a career over the last two and a half decades um, and knowing all the extra steps that I had in every part of the process. I mean, I just remember trying to explain to my parents what I actually do for a living and saying, well, we don't just put things on the TV for you. There's this and this and this and this and this. And, you know, all along the way, you kind of in the back of your mind say, oh, if, if only there was a better way, if we could if we could save a few minutes here, or a few minutes there. And so I think that's sort of where this is starting, that it's kind of a better mousetrap uh, that, that we're getting access to. So things are becoming more efficient. The idea of being able to do a, a string out or a rough cut based solely on you know, moving text around is really incredible. Um, but now we're also starting to see the next phase, which is not just being more efficient with things, but doing things that were never before possible. So, you know, whether that is uh, creating audio uh, by a voice that wasn't, you know. Frankenbytes. Exactly. You know, uh, people look at um, getting people to say things that weren't actually said. That's great. We can generate things. But Frankenbytes are something that we used to spend so long getting the nuances of. Adobe also has Remix uh, to be able to recut audio to the exact uh, duration that you need. Uh, I'm sorry, for music, um, using AI to do that. How many hours did I spend every day trying to get, oh, there's this one symbol crash that goes a frame too long, or it's, you know, between the frame uh, is where the cut would need to happen. So having all of this is really transforming the way that we're able to work, where we are starting to work at the speed of our creativity, which I think is really the ultimate goal. Nice. Working at the speed of our creativity. I, li I like that one. I'll credit you twice, and then I'll... Pretend it's mine. Um, Shaheen, what do you what do you what do you feel about AI? I don't know if I can echo that. Yeah, working at the speed of creativity. I I had that experience. So I came out of uh, NAB. I got to see the text based editing live. I saw the camera to cloud functionality, and then of course I went back to work, and we just picked up where we were. Um, and I had a per I have a personal project that I've been working on, and um, a producer kind of out of the blue called me and was like, hey, you know, do you have time? I have someone I want to pitch this as a TikTok to. And I'm like, oh, this is like the thousandth edit, right? So I sit down with him and I only have the export, right? The thing you're never supposed to cut. And so I cut the export down and it's already mixed in and it's a mess. So now I come home and I'm trying to match this edit and I have an aha moment. I'm like, this is the moment for beta. And I, I, you know, install it. And I, now it's on my own time, right? I don't have someone behind me being like, this edit's got to go out now, right? So I run my, you know, exported mashup through um, the text, the transcript AI. And uh, now I can just follow that along. And it's such a small thing, right? Like, um, but it did speed me up. And now I was operating at my pace of, the creativity um, and not being stuck in like, all right, I've got to hand type out the text because I can't remember this dialogue for the life of me, even though I've edited it like over and over again for so many years. Um, 
So I think AI, I mean, at the same time, you know, my editors bring up Runway and are very stressed about it. And I'm like, well, we should do a demo. And they're like, I cannot give it my intelligence. Like, I can't make it any better. So, and I hear that too. Um, so I think it's, you know, like you have to learn the technology. Um, I don't know how you protect yourself from it, though. That's, I think, beyond my pay grade. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, for me, I'm actually really excited about AI. I, I think right now we're kind of in the wild west and we're trying to kind of figure out and navigate where it's going to go. And, uh, I, I think getting rid of doing basic tasks and making things a little more streamlined, a little more automated will help you out as a, as a creator. Uh, and I think that's kind of the, the, the big thing that we want to focus on here. You know, the, the fear that everybody has of, of AI and where it's going is, I think, ultimately determined uh, up to us how we want to utilize it, where we want it to go. And um, for me, I, I, I think it's something really excited that we can, exciting that we can get into, uh, that we can discover more about ourselves and see how we can, you know, we live in a world where like content has to come out fast. We have to work faster. And if there's ways to support that and, and have an automated system to be able to make that work, then I, I, I'm, I'm all for it. And one of the things that came up from some of the previous panels is the idea that we're going to be able to use AI to get rid of the things that we do over and over and over again in post-production because they're just the, the, the tasks that are so difficult. Um, one of the products I saw at the show was um, Curio from Gray Meta. And you tell it, hey, I'd like to find this logo. And they, they showed me, they're like, let's, let's take a look at hours of uh, basketball games and find the Adobe logo. They found it. It was the slam duck cam. It was at the very top of the backboard. As a human, I would have never saw that because it probably was moving by too quickly. And I, I wouldn't have been, you know, humans don't have that level of focus looking for that sort of thing. And who's got the time to spend hours looking through the, the footage for, for just that little logo. So those tasks that we're able to automate out, leave the creativity for the rest of us, which gets into that this this next section here, which talks about the scary stuff, um, ChatGPT, uh, Adobe Gener or uh, image generation, Adobe Firefly. What are people seeing today that's beginning to freak them out and go, to, "Will I have a job in in you know six months, nine months?" Um, or you know, what what are your thoughts on the on the scary pieces there, and how how do you have discussions with other people about what the frightening part of AI is and how that's not necessarily as bad as you think it is. Shaheen, let's start with you. I think automation is not new. It, you know, maybe the intelligence behind it might be more developed than we've ever seen it. Um, and I think that we've always had to learn how to work with automation, right? We've always kind of feared being replaced, um, so I, I don't think I would approach this any differently, right? It's like you've got to learn the automation because ultimately you still need people who have to drive it. Um, and I think on the same token, like creatives have never disappeared either, right? Like um, I think more today than ever before, like technology is very intertwined with being able to create. And yes, like as a result, there are creatives who do not get to execute their story, um, 
you know, or reach an audience in the same way they could. And that's unfortunate, but I think, um, you know, I think we're at the same juncture that we've been in, in different moments, you know, where it's like, there's technology coming that can put you out of work, but you also need people who can execute that technology and that's more work. Definitely. What do, what do you think on that? What, what do you tell people when they say, AR going to take my job? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I think they said the same thing when the internet came out is like, this is a whole vast new world. This is going to change things. And we've been able to maintain it for thus far. We've been able to make it work for us and work in our favor. Uh, I think, you know, the future of AI, you know, I think we, you know, companies need to take responsibility for, you know, how they uh, allow people to utilize it and, and work with it. And, you know, I, it, it's, it's tough because, you know, the things may change and adjust and, you know, technology moves forward. And I think people have to move forward as well. And we have to mold and, and change with it. Um, but I, I, I think it's up to us at this moment to, really lean in and figure out how we want to utilize it. I think we need to ask, what is AI going to do to us? We need to ask, what can we make AI do? What can we make AI do uh, to make it better for us and the people that we're working with and the, the projects that we're working on? Um, and you were mentioning, you know, Firefly, uh, you know, when, when you generate images out of a Firefly, you know, our, our backend system uh, takes that from Adobe stock and we give that back to the creators of that platform. So this is kind of the beginning of a way to still include the creator and include uh, the, the, the imagination behind it and support them, but also still providing, um, you know, uh, uh, imagery and art and things that you want to create uh, for your projects. A, a marketplace for creativity. Absolutely. Um, and then one of the other things I've, I've seen out there is, um, Anybody in the localization part of the business? That's that's one of those parts of the business that is iterative. I mean, it's 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 you're doing the same thing over and over again. That that's the sort of thing that AI is going to arrive at first, and people are going to say, "We can simply have me speaking in Portuguese. It's my voice, but it's Portuguese and Spanish and Malay." and uh, Tagalog, it, it just will happen that way. You don't have to hire somebody who sounds kind of like Jeff to make it sound that way. And then we can make my, my lips move the same way in those languages. Those are the pieces that are, that are out there. And then that'll leave the, um, actually the more critical parts of the localization business, like, okay, is this offensive to these people in these countries because we're talking about X, Y, and Z because it's content derivative, not, uh, just standard transcription, that sort of thing. Uh, David, what are you telling people who are fearful of the robot overlords? Uh, be polite. Um, <laughs> my my wife has me well trained that you know if I ask Siri or Alexa for something, I always say please and thank you because when the robot revolution, I comes, do the same. I want to be on the good list. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I I used to say that jokingly and now it's half jokingly and uh, i'm afraid of <laughs> may not be joking for so long um no i think i think that there's there's been some really good points raised i i think that there are new capabilities all the time uh and it's up to us to figure out how we're going to be leveraging them as a tool i think the scary part is when we sort of 
let it out of its cage and say, you know, go go through the village, do what you're going to do. Um, so I think when I mean, when you talk about localization, though, that's a, that's a really cool idea that that it would be your voice with your inflection and the mouth would be moving properly. And really what that does is it gives the viewer the same viewing experience that anyone else has just in a language they can understand. And it's, it's the same idea as, you know, translating books. Um, you know, if you're reading a book in a different language or a language that it wasn't originally written in, the whole intent is to give the the reader the same experience of that that first time through. So I think that there's something really amazing there, and we're we're learning how to use it. We're learning the ways to leverage it. If only there was a mechanism uh, when when I was doing this to auto blur things. Uh, you know, standards and practices had me doing some really late nights blurring um, and keyframing. But uh, I think. I think it's about it's about learning how we leverage it, but it's also that we need to maintain champions and advocates for the creative community and, and the artists, because, I mean, we're seeing right now with current uh, employment talks, uh, some of the effects that AI is having. And when people just sort of step in and say, a machine can do it just as well as you can. We we end up losing a lot, and and so I think we need to make sure that there are people still seeing that humans are still required for the type of content and the quality that we're looking for. And I don't know if any if some of that will ever be able to come out of a machine. Um, but again, I apologize if. That is the case. They're speaking out of turn. They're what? They're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Siri, I apologize. Yeah. Um, so, uh, quick question here for the audience: Who learned to originally edit with celluloid and razor blades? Who will learn, originally learned to edit with two VTRs and a single AB, single uh, cuts only controller? Uh, it's me too. Um, who here started out with um, a multi-deck suite, so AB editing, like a CMX 300, that sort of thing. Um, who started out with computers? Who's, who started out with, with computers and it was Avid? Who started out with computers and it was Premiere? So of you people who raised your hands, who are using the exact same tool set you learned to cut with today? Very small amount. What was important about that? It was telling the story, wasn't it? That's what we learned in in in, in film and television school back in the day. What we needed to, to to do there. So your technology has changed, and who here um, who here has immense time savings from the way they originally learned to edit using their tools today? So that that kind of boils down to where where things are at with technology, it's, it's always gonna to adapt to service us. Um, and that, that's, the, that's the whole point. Now, of, of you folks who are out there, who knows how to code? You, you will control the robot overlords. That's, that's the whole point. 
Um, any questions out there from the audience about anything we've talked about so far? From the tools that are available today that can find things and that, that sort of thing, how far do we think it's going to be before technology can actually tell the story? Some of that's already happening. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing not, not long form so much, but certainly short form where it's not just, it's not just cutting things or, or creating the story, but it's also creating the footage. Uh, it's, it's creating new music for the background. It's doing all the audio work. So, uh, I mean, it, as it is today, it's impressive that it can do it, but it, Story-wise, it's a little bit of a jumbled mess, but it's not going to be long before technology is uh, just even slightly more advanced to be able to take on some of those things. So I think I think it's not too far away. Any other thoughts on that one? Well, my thought is it's like you, you still need people to be able to get that stuff generated, put it through the system, get it, you know, make sure that it's right. You know, as I said before, it is still kind of the wild west. You still need somebody to proofread. Uh, you still need somebody to look through the edit. You know, you still are going to need to be able to have a, a human person look through that and make sure that the story is being told properly. Uh, where that goes, I, I, again, I think that's up to us to determine, but you know, uh, I, I think right now it's a great exploration to see how that can cut our time uh, savings up. The one thing I'd seen out there is a documentary editor took his entire transcript, dumped it into chat GPT and said, tell me the story. It didn't use the sections as, as blocks like Legos. It just hashed it all up, told a story, but not the story that came from that footage. So it, it wasn't quite there yet. There wasn't that understanding. Will it get there? Maybe. It's one of those things we don't necessarily know. Um, the other thing also I, I would have to think about that is it's, um, it's derivative. All AI is derivative. It's all based upon what we've fed it. So one of the things I've heard about AI is, hey, we keep feeding it um, superhero movies. What are we going to get? Superhero movies. Who here is tired of watching superhero movies? So it's not going to get audience. So you can't go to AI and say, hey, Tell me what the next thing is going to be that's going to be grabbing a huge new audience. It's not necessarily going to know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that kind of just ties in, though, to who is who's the audience and who's making the decisions on what this content should be for this audience. Um, if it's purely reactive, then we're creating more content that's just like whatever is most popular at that moment. And to Jeff's point, because it is all derivative, we go down this, this rabbit hole where it just becomes an onslaught of all the same thing over and over. And I think that we see that even from people when, when you look at trends on, on social or, or YouTube, where all of a sudden everyone is doing the same type of, of video. So I think that just sort of fits into uh, that same scheme, um, just it's going to be able to happen at a much larger scale and a lot faster. So I think that, um, you know, the, the intelligence aspect of it, where the AI is going to not just be learning and interpreting and then creating from it, but learning from what they're doing 
and they sort of drive themselves to keep creating that. I don't, I don't know how that's going to intersect with what the audience demand is ultimately. Um, I think that that is, that's going to be a big part that we need to keep the consumers and the audience in mind. And if, if the AI goes off track and pursues what it thinks is, is most important, you know, it's, it's not going to be able to succeed that way. It gets back to the million monkeys and a million typewriters argument. Are they going to create new content? Not necessarily. May just be the letter Q over and over and over and over and over again. All right, next question. So the question there is, came up in tech, why is AI a big deal now compared to other technologies like blockchain and, and crypto and all that other fun stuff? Um, the one it, with self-driving cars is an interesting, um, interesting metaphor there. Um, the one thing I would say before we toss it out to everybody else is self-driving cars are cool unless you're a truck driver, then your livelihood is on the line. And that I think is why AI in production and post has captured our imagination. Other thoughts on this? I'll, I'll say a quick something. I, I like that question because I think as I, as we were just talking, the thing that's coming to my mind is like, what about what satiates the creative, right? Like what what satiates us as cre creators, not just consumers. And I think that um, in the case of dri uh, driverless cars or truck drivers, as you're making the point, is there is the, you know, the truck driver whose emotions, opinions, livelihood are tied to how far something can go. And I think that's true for AI and creative too. It's a, I think, the most satisfaction I get in my field is my opportunity to collaborate with other creatives. Like I, as an editor, my days are sometimes the most grueling because I'm not interacting with anything real. And, um, you know, it's one of the reasons I moved away from the edit because I, it was much more satisfying for me to work with people rather than people on screens. Um, and I think that that would probably drive me a little bit. And I, I, I imagine that that will drive how fast things can move forward or how much people take to it. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I see is technology is, is buzzy for lack of a better word. Um, and when we look at the creative community specifically, uh, we like to innovate. We like to figure out new ways of doing things that have never been done before. And so when you marry buzzwords and, and cool concepts that may not be fully proven out with people who want to just do skunk works projects and, and uh, figure out new ways to do things, you get some really interesting results, but it doesn't always work. Um, I think of VR. I mean, the, the number of projects that I did between 2012 and 2015 that started with a producer who just said, oh, let's do something with VR. You know, how many of those went somewhere? Uh, not too many, but I, I think that what we, what I always look for is who's, who's 
cracking the code? Who's who's figuring out this is the new way that it can actually be used? Because no, a lot of the time, it ends up being sort of an off-label use. I, I think that the intended or prescribed way of using some of this new technology is just very far off from, from the way that we will eventually be using it in the future. So uh, as far as how it's adopted and the speed of adoption, I think that's all dependent on the trial and error and, and sort of us seeing how much we like it. But yeah. And, and I think how much it will be accepted by us as a creative community and how much of a value it brings to those who want to pay our salaries. Because if there's folks out there who feel that AI could possibly do this better than humans can, then hey, they're gonna they're gonna look for the the, the best bang for their buck. Um, but there's still a cost to AI anyway. It doesn't matter doesn't matter where you're getting it from. There's still a cost. And who here who here has been in the metaverse for the last six months? You know, it's about to tank Facebook, right? Financially, it's 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 costing the company to tank. They're dumping so much money into it. So that was that was supposed to be the big new thing. Everyone was going to be in the metaverse and I ain't there. No, no, no. I'm not buying digital artwork for my uh, fake living room. <laughs> That's not, not, not interested in that. What if, what if it was some of these posters? I heard you talking before. Oh yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm definitely, if there's some go missing, uh, I don't know. We don't know what me. happened. Um, next question. So the, the question there is, is anyone using generative AI for actual creative work or is it falling flat? I would say, first of all, uh, when you see that beer commercial that's created by AI, don't laugh because they're listening. Um, <laughs> but I, I, think, I think there's a few things at play. I, I have seen people using generative AI for design uh, to, to come up with more options or to better fit a campaign you know, where it's not necessarily doing things from scratch, but it is making tweaks. And um, I think that part of what we need to look at is how opaque, you know, is, is it just a black box doing this? Um, not just for our own safety and, and well-being, but but really um, so that we know why it's why it's making the decisions that it is. And I feel like we can learn from that. Uh, so I think that's, that's an interesting aspect of it. But I also think that this whole question is, is a much bigger, broader, more existential question. With the generative AI, we're losing touch with reality. I mean, we've already lost touch with what's real. And so when we're looking at photorealistic images of things that never existed, we don't know what's real anymore. Um, and when it comes to storytelling, storytelling was always something that was inherently a human uh, trait or ability. Um, we don't know of any other animals or, or beings that, that can tell a story. Uh, and so the idea that it's not just robots are coming for our jobs, but it's, it's coming for the things that, are make, that make us human, that we identify as human aspects, uh, I think that's where a lot of the fear comes from. So, um, yeah, generative, I think it's, there are uses and I am seeing some people using it 
properly or in interesting ways, but uh, I think it it is able to make us lose touch with reality, which is a little frightening. That's one of the interesting things out there. I've, I've heard marketing people say, dude, all my tweets have just come out of chat GPT for the last three months. More than one marketing person I've heard say that because they're, they're derivative of what they give them. So they're, they'll throw them at a website and bloop. Okay. Here's the tweet about this event today. Not saying that the event about the tweet about today's event was, was uh, chat GPT, but I'm just saying that's one of the things out there. But when you get into imagery, it's, it's a lot more complex. So I think at this point, the, it's possible to do it, just not at that level because it's a, a level that's more complex. Could it do it? I guess it depends upon how well people accept it and how well can people continue to train these models. The thing I think that will be very interesting is generative AI over the next, um, the 2024 uh, campaign cycle. That's going to be, there's going to be a lot of that thrown out there because it's really low hanging fruit and it's really cheap to do. The, the thing also I've, I've, I've run into um, out at HPA, there's a, there's a quiz that's run and I threw the question into ChatGPT because it will search the internet a lot better than, than I can necessarily in Google. And I'm pretty good at Google searching. That's kind of what I do for a living. Um, and the answers that came back were outright lies because it, it found a piece of data and then it put it in the way that it expected me to want to read it. So the answer to your question is this, as fact, and it was wrong. So the thing is, it still goes back to those models that we're, we're giving it and how it can, it can track along with it. Any other thoughts there? Yeah, so I, I learned programming uh, through After Effects. That's how I started. I, I had never even made a website and I started learning expressions. Then I learned some scripting. Next thing you know, I'm making panels and, and things like that. And so I've, I've played around with ChatGPT to say, you know, make, make me an After Effects script that does this or that. And it's usually broken at, at the start, but I, I can go through and read it and, and uh, you know, get it up and running. And yeah, it's really helpful. Um, but from a, uh, two things, one from, from an education standpoint, if you're starting from scratch, this is technology that's just going to make you completely reliant on that technology. Uh, it's great as sort of a learning tool to help you along and guide you as you've already built a foundation. But I think if you don't have that foundation, it's just going to do it for you and you're never actually learn you you can have ideas and have a robot do it or you know ai do it for you but um but you're not gaining that skill yourself um so i i think that that's one aspect the other aspect is that because i didn't have a background in programming whatsoever i mean i i really just cobbled things together on the internet and taught myself i didn't do things the prescribed way and sometimes it led to things just not being as efficient or my code would look pretty messy and would be hard for people to, you know, other people to read and fix. But I stumbled upon lots of techniques and, and strategies and approaches 
that someone who had a formal training would never have gotten to. And I think that those types of developments will be lost when we have AI saying this is the best way to do it and starts teaching everyone that that is the right way to do it. So uh, just- It's almost like the engineered path versus the desired path. Hey, I've made it look like this. Yeah. But everybody wants to cut across that way. well, that's not how I was told to build it. Build it. So that that's one of those those things that's out there. And I'm also hearing that After Effects may be a gateway drug. That's what I'm hearing. After Effects may be a gateway drug to programming. So just just keep that in mind and 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 use AE responsibly. And hold on. Yeah. Okay. Alexa is telling me that we're out of time. And I'd like to thank our panel for joining us today. Uh, and thank you everybody here for joining us today at Post NAB. Thanks for watching Broadcast to Post. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes. Follow Keycode Media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to receive news on additional AV, broadcast, and post-production technology content. See you next time, folks.